1: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast
2: series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Well, the bombardment of Ukraine sees another violent day with no sign of slowing down. Here in Dublin, we take a look at what can be done to stop the bloodshed and bring about peace. I'm here in Brussels
3: as the European Union slaps more sanctions on Russia. The question is, will it be enough? I also speak to two Irish MEPs, Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, about their views on sanctions and censorship. I don't believe in
4: censorship. How would you like to be censored? I mean, I'm I'm, I'm amazed that the media would actually uh, think that censoring other media is a good idea.
2: Ukraine has seen another terrifying day of bombing, shelling and mayhem as the Russian attack continued. This is footage of the city of Mariupol, or what is left of it. There was thankfully some good news from there today. An evacuation convoy of about 160 cars has managed to leave the city. The capital of Kyiv also came under heavy bombardment. A block of flats was targeted by heavy fire. And closer to home, a ship carrying Russian diesel has docked at Dublin port. Some workers have refused to unload the vessel. Well, all of this comes as Russia and Ukraine met for peace talks. I'm joined from Riga in Latvia by news correspondent Giles Gibson. The fourth round of peace talks. Giles, any sense of progress or any movement indeed in this meeting that is hopefully going to take place between uh, Zelensky and Putin?
5: Well, the two sides are still talking, but there is really no sign of any sort of a, a major breakthrough. This round of talks taking place via video link after the previous round of talks had been taking place in person, face to face, inside of Belarus. We've had a tweet from a Ukrainian negotiator, one of the team of negotiators, saying that Russia still has a delusion that 19 days of violence is the right strategy. A member of the Russian side uh, simply saying that they are sticking to the goals that have been provided to them by their president, Vladimir Putin. I think one small sign of progress is the fact that that humanitarian corridor has now been established. It's fragile, but it has been established out of that southern city of Mariupol, which is now surrounded by Russian forces. Uh, Civilians have been trying to get out of that besieged city for days and days now, and a convoy of civilians has now managed to get out. So uh, one small sign of progress, something that the two sides can perhaps build upon when they meet again on Tuesday, and perhaps even work towards that summit between Volodymyr Zelensky and Vladimir Putin.
2: Um, You're obviously in Latvia. I'm interested to hear what the reaction has been there and indeed in the other Baltic uh, states to the news this morning that uh, the Russians had had a missile strike very close to the uh, Polish border.
5: Well, the Latvian Prime Minister was actually in London earlier. He had a meeting with the uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. We heard from 10 Downing Street uh, that the two countries are working towards deepening their defence ties uh, and shoring up European security. Uh, Of course, over the weekend, we had that missile strike on that military base in the far west of Ukraine, uh, around 25 kilometres from the border with Poland, which of course is a member of NATO and also a member of the European Union. You even had people just inside the border, inside Poland, who were reporting that their windows were rattling because of the ferocity of these missile strikes uh, hitting that missile base. Uh, Here in the the Latvian capital, Riga, there are certainly lots of signs of solidarity with the Ukrainian people. I've seen uh, lots of people putting up uh, Ukrainian flags on their balconies and outside of their houses. I saw a a small collection of blue and yellow candles uh, lit at one street corner. So a real sense of togetherness, but also, I think, a really heightened sense of awareness that this country has a very long border with Russia uh, on its eastern frontier.
2: All right, we'll leave it there, Giles Gibson. Thank you for that update. Well, the EU was quick off the mark when it came to helping Ukraine and sanctioning Russia. But has it been enough to deter Vladimir Putin? Let's go live to Brussels, where Claire Brock has been looking at the EU's reaction. Claire.
3: Thanks, Kira. Well, we're here in Brussels, where, as you say, we'll be looking at the latest developments on those sanctions agreed by EU member states and how Europe is also responding to this glowing, growing uh, humanitarian crisis. But first, to two Irish MEPs who've hit the headlines for their views on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Independence for Change MEPs Claire Daly and Mick Wallace say they're taking a stand in the European Parliament about what they see as growing militarisation within Europe and earlier today I spoke to them I began by asking Claire Daly why they were among 13 MEPs to vote down a motion condemning Russian aggression in Ukraine
1: well I suppose the first thing to say is is that we voted absolutely to condemn the Russian invasion to put the sole responsibility Russia for that to argue for the respecting of the territorial uh, grounds of Ukraine and for a complete and utter cessation of hostilities and withdrawal of of, uh, Russian troops so all of that and we voted on those and the record is there that those sections of the motion we were very clear on it's a completely illegal act on Russia's behalf but the reason why we didn't vote for the overall motion was that it also contained a number of very serious clauses like increasing the weapon going into Ukraine and we see that now with a massive escalation of the conflict. We see more engagement with NATO being called for and a commitment from the EU to increase its military expenditure. So there were a lot of issues like that which meant we couldn't as representatives of a neutral country argue for uh, that type of stance because in our experience it just means prolonging the situation and making things worse.
3: There's been reaction to the stance that you've taken um, here in Europe as one of a number small number of MEPs who voted down that motion what's been the fallout for you personally your office was targeted tell us about that I
1: will look at I mean I think that was a little bit exaggerated at home I mean it's, it was a little bit sinister in that the 13 people who voted against the motion and um, during the night on Monday night inside the Parliament in Strasbourg uh, Nazi stickers were put on our doors which is obviously uh, very intimidating and um, it means the neo-Nazis have their eyes on us that's basically what it's saying it came from far-right group, we think in Poland. Uh, but it's a big undertaking to find all those offices. The, the Parliament building in Strasbourg is immense, like it's a huge footprint. and to find all those offices and put the stickers out and undercover of darkness, a bit weird, but no, that, that's all, you know. And you,
3: you also say you're subjected to brute intimidation. Tell us
1: about that. No, no, it's just we're saying there's a lot of, I suppose, aggressive emails which are not really rational. It's funny, like, it's a mix. Increasingly, there's a, a minority, absolutely, but a sizable amount of people who are getting in touch saying, please, we need that neutral voice being made. We know you're getting it in the neck, but we want that voice made. We want the voice of reason and the voice of peace being heard. So, And indeed, your commentary
3: in Parliament has been picked up a lot. Are you concerned at all that it's being used again in Russian media outlets and elsewhere and how that may be used in the propaganda war?
1: Well, I don't see why that would be a problem. I, I think it would be a good thing if that was played in Russia because I roundly condemned their invasion of Ukraine. But I also explain that to take it out of the context and not acknowledge that NATO involvement in Ukraine wasn't part of this conflict would be uh, a disservice, really, to the people of Ukraine because it means we're not going to be able to resolve the issue. So I think in that sense, if they're playing it in Russia and I don't know if they are, well, then the message is the same for them. It's a message of peace. So how could that be misinterpreted, you know? Obviously, you're
3: opposed to a lot of the EU moves around this. Where do you see it go? how do you see it de-escalating now
4: listen it's very difficult it's so easy to start a war but it's so hard to stop it the eu itself as an institution has not look has not come out of it well and the all the, the whole build up in my opinion this war could have been avoided now how? listen what i mean this putin was 100% wrong and it's a disaster what he's done and it's a disaster for his own people it's madness on his part right but at the same time uh, you can't just say well he's a madman so we can't talk to him listen you, there's there's no there's going to be there isn't going to be a peace until there's some form of negotiation and how that happens uh, any form of negotiation requires compromises on both sides and I firmly believe that Russia has genuine security concerns about NATO going into the Ukraine. If NATO were to move into the Ukraine, do you, do, you, do you realize that you can put missiles on the Ukraine-Russian border that will hit Moscow in five minutes? You can't defend against that. They haven't invented the technology to defend against it.
3: So just to clarify, do you believe what Russia is doing now is in response to a direct security threat? And that's why they're I, I,
4: I think what Russia is doing now is 100% wrong, and they're going the wrong way about it. Uh, they obviously have security concerns. The expansion of NATO East since 1991 has been unhelpful. It has destabilised the region. But that doesn't change the fact that what, what Putin is doing now is, is a crime. And uh, and the Americans have suggested that he should face the, uh, the criminal courts for it. Yeah, he should too. But it's a pity they don't even sign up for it, because they're not allowed, to, they are not face the court for anything.
3: You also opposed an EU-wide ban on Russia's state-backed television, RT. Uh, tell us why you took that stance. I don't believe in censorship. How
4: would you like to be censored? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that the media would actually uh, think that censor, censoring other media is a good idea. Listen, do Russia and today spin it uh, in a Russian direction? Of course they do. But should the Irish media spin it as, as well and the other side? Of course they do. Everyone does it. There's, there's, amount, there's plenty of disinformation coming out of all forms of media and the, the idea that one is holier than thou is nonsense and we don't believe in censoring people. People should be allowed to listen to whatever they want and make up their own minds and, and discern for themselves where the truth lies. At the moment in the war the amount of disinformation coming out from both sides is phenomenal. And it's going to be difficult for us to even know what's really happening, and probably until a later time.
3: Have you been speaking to Russia Today during the course of what's happening now? Um, have you been uh, doing media interviews with Russia Today? <laughs> no, I
4: haven't, but I know.
3: <laughs> no, but a bit why too. is that? Because they haven't asked me but you would gladly do it. I listen,
4: I mean, uh, if I thought it was going to be uh, done in a fair manner, uh, I would do it. If I thought they were just going to use me to promote the Russian cause, I wouldn't do it.
3: Yeah, because that's the concern, and we've seen those clips online and how they've been used, the commentary well, I mean, say, listen, from the Parliament hey, here, and how it's I've, been picked I've, up I've, by, I've, by I've, Russia I've, today. I see
4: Irish media rolling out Fianna Fallers and Gaelers to promote uh, US imperialism morning, noon and night.
3: Mick Wallace there with his uh, own take on the propaganda war. Shona Murray, Euronews Europe correspondent, joins me now. And Shona, it's fair to say that the two Irish MEPs, Clare Daly and Mick Wallace, are really taking a stand here in Europe and getting a lot of attention in Brussels and at home as well.
6: Yeah, that's right. I think it's very interesting that they made the point that they outright condemned the invasion in Russia um, and all of the humanitarian catastrophes that will ensue because of that. Obviously Mick Wallace making the point that negotiations, diplomatic negotiations, are the only way out of this, which is exactly what everybody says. For the past year, there has been intensive negotiations calling for Russia to de-escalate because it's almost a year that Vladimir Putin built up 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border uh, at the OSCE, at the UN, at NATO level, between Biden, Putin, at the EU level. We had uh, Joseph Borrell, the EU, EU's foreign policy chief, humiliated in Moscow just under a year ago by his counterpart Sergei Lavrov. So those intensive negotiations have been ongoing, they've led to nothing. Vladimir Putin making huge demands against NATO, Mm -hmm. saying they had to go back to 1997 borders, not allow ex-Soviet states in, and essentially not regarding Ukraine's decision to join NATO, which, remember, was something they had no intention of doing until 2014, when Vladimir Putin annexed part of its own country. And that's why today, uh, at NATO level, they won't engage from a conflict or combat point of view because it's a, a defensive agency. So everybody believes that diplomacy is the answer, except for Vladimir Putin.
3: Yeah, and the argument, I suppose, being made by Claire Daly, Mick Wallace and others is that should Ukraine be a neutral country, that this could be a way out of the current situation. But right now, it's very difficult what's facing the Ukrainian people, um, given the current onslaught in the country. Um, also, shown, I suppose we're hearing uh, today on more sanctions, sanctions being ramped up against, uh, against Russia. This is the fourth package of sanctions. Is there a sense that these will have
6: any impact because as we know the sanctions to date haven't made much difference i don't know if anybody believes that anything's going to deter vladimir putin in relation to sanctions at this point but it's certainly about isolating russia as far as possible today you had sanctions against uh, 15 individuals roman abramovich uh, other oligarchs uh, the fashion industry so anything uh, above 300 euros sanctioned uh, in terms of the luxury goods industry and oil and gas still off the table and there is strong unity amongst EU member states around sanctions but oil and gas for some countries really need to be on the table the Baltics Poland and so on would like to see much harder sanctions and then Germany Hungary for example see really holding back Italy as well Italy's very exposed as a country when it comes to Russian gas it's around 40% it relies on so um, that is still not on the table as of yet.
3: Yeah, is there a sense that that will be something that will be considered? Ultimately, that may be the game changer here.
6: Yeah, I mean, that's what some people feel, but I know speaking to sources after that uh, meeting today, a long meeting of EU ambassadors, it's definitely not on the table. And there's this particular annoyance from Poland and the Baltics that it doesn't seem to be. But I think everyone sees that it's inevitable. I mean, Europe relies on about 40% for about 40% of its gas from Russia they've said they're going to phase it out by two-thirds by 2023 but that needs to be accelerated because of course it finances uh, Putin's war I mean 30 percent of Russian income comes from that exportation so it probably will be something that eventually have to happen but it's just not right there at this point that's for sure okay obviously
3: uh, we're speaking as well about the growing humanitarian crisis the UN saying today almost 3 million people have now fled Ukraine many of them going to Poland and And we're hearing as many as 4 million people maybe fleeing the country, fleeing the invasion. Um, What's the sense of what Europe is doing? Because Poland is asking for more help in dealing with this crisis on their border.
6: Yeah, there's funding from an EU point of view. There was 1.2 billion euro given to Ukraine for funding for refugees and the humanitarian situation. And then member states will be given money from the EU budget to support refugees. But it really is, you know... I mean, nobody really knows how to plan for it because they don't know exactly how many people are going to end up needing full-time or permanent support in the EU. I think that decision to allow refugees have three years where they can work, go to school, get social welfare from member states is really positive because it means that your refugees can obviously have a dignity in the new countries they they go to. Nobody knows how protracted this conflict is going to go on for. Um, I mean, there's a huge NATO meeting this week and next week where we'll see uh, maybe the military situation evolve depending on the threat that comes from Vladimir Putin. Yeah, and finally,
3: Shona, is is there a sense that Europe is unified on this approach in in dealing with this humanitarian situation, in taking in refugees as best as countries can?
6: Yeah, I think there's a unity when it comes to taking in the refugees. It's not like in any way the refugee crisis that evolved from Syria and Afghanistan. and That's quite unfortunate because, of course, it, it seems like there's a hierarchy, but, of course, Ukraine is so close to the EU and there's a feeling that Ukraine, Ukrainians are fighting a war, an existential war for Europe, and that has to be regarded. So that, therefore, you have conversations about speeding up candidacy, candidacy process for Ukraine, the European Union. I think that's deeply symbolic for now. It's not something that can materialise any time soon.
3: Okay, Shona, thank you for that. And there we leave it from Brussels. We'll have much more on the Ukrainian crisis after the break. Stay with us.
2: You're very welcome back. Well, Ukraine will be top of the agenda when the Taoiseach meets President Joe Biden on Thursday. I'm joined now by our political correspondent, Gavin Riley, who is live for us in Washington, right in front of the White House there, Gavin. Um, just before we came uh, off air, or sorry, uh, came back on air, rather, I could hear some protesting in the background Is that protests about Ukraine and how, in general, has Joe Biden's handling of this crisis been received?
8: You're absolutely right, Kira. It is a complaint about America's relatively hands-off approach to the Ukrainian crisis. I'm going to step back for just a moment. Hopefully, my cameraman, Mark, will be able to show you a little bit of what's going on. You should be able to pick out a handful of blue and yellow Ukrainian flags from a crowd of maybe close to 100 people who are dotted around the front of the White House, all chanting various slogans, demanding more American action, including, in particular, the one refrain that you hear over and over again is demanding that Joe Biden help Ukraine protect its own airspace. Now, that has to be said that is not an argument which is getting too warm a reception here in washington because many people either red or blue here in the united states would see the idea of america or nato stepping in to defend ukrainian airspace as basically requiring nato air forces then to shoot down any russian aircraft that were flying over ukraine and that in itself then could be an escalation into a full-blown war between russia and nato which is not what they want um, it has to be said um kira that when you are here and when you see a lot more of the discussion about ukraine and it is everywhere. It's on the front pages of all the newspapers, it's all the talk radio, it's all the cable news channels. It is wall to wall discussion around what's going on in Ukraine but it is a little bit more abstract. We get used to the coverage at home of talking about a war on our own continent, a humanitarian crisis taking place on our own continent and the resulting numbers of tens of thousands of people going to be coming to our own countries. That is an aspect of the discussion which you don't get over here. It is more of a concern around Russian aggression and the role of NATO but you don't get that sense of immediacy. There a little bit more of a hands-off attitude and that is why you end up having protests like this one right now where people are demanding that america do a little bit more but it doesn't just have that same level of urgency or immediacy or it just doesn't feel like it's in their neighborhood the same way as it does when we're talking about it at home given that it is a war that's ongoing in our continent
2: so what do you expect then michael martin is going to be saying to joe biden when they have their meeting on thursday i take it ukraine is going to dominate that conversation
8: It's definitely going to dominate the conversation. In fact, when the White House put out an official statement last night confirming uh, to the American media that Micheál Martin was going to be coming over for his meeting in the Oval Office on Thursday, it specifically said that the issues in Ukraine were going to be top of the agenda. And part of the reason why they think that Ireland may have a role to play in that is because Ireland, as we know, is currently a member of the United Nations Security Council and they see Ireland as being a little bit more of an active player or an active voice on the world stage as far as that goes. That, in turn, may constrain Ireland's ability to come over here with a shopping list that it may have done in the past. You would regularly have Taoiseach coming over here, sitting down with presidents and asking for there to be some progress on legalising the 50,000 undocumented Irish living in the United States. And there might be discussions around corporate tax or uh, transatlantic investment and all the likes. All of that will have to take a little bit of a back seat because clearly America wants to discuss Ukraine first and foremost, whether it is Ireland's role on the Security Council, Ireland's role in the EU, Ireland's role as a, a global headquarters for aircraft leasing and some of the consequences that may have. Indeed, the role of the IFSC in facilitating some Russian bankrolling of oligarchs and their companies and the like the US clearly thinks that Ireland has some role to play in that so this isn't going to be one of the Patrick's days where Ireland comes over as a transatlantic novelty to come over and and shake hands and shake shake, shake, shamrocks, this is going to be one of those cases where Ireland comes over and is actually something of a global player which is maybe in its own way a little bit of a compliment about how much of an influential voice Ireland has become on the world stage in the last few years
2: right, we'll leave it there Gavin but we'll speak to you over the next... Of days, uh, Gavin Reilly there, uh, live from Washington. Well, for more on all of this, I am joined by Fina Foyle MEP Barry Andrews, Gary Gannon TD from the Social Democrats, former Government Minister Alan Shatter, and Ireland editor at independent.ie Fionan Sheehan. You're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Fionn, I suppose before we talk about the political aspect of this crisis, it is important, doesn't it, to keep the human suffering, the human cost front and center. Center. You're just back from the Polish-Ukraine border. You were there for ten days. What did you see? What did you experience? What's the standout memory for you?
9: Yeah, the, the big thing for me is just the stoicism of these Ukrainian refugees who are travelling for anything up to, up to three days. They can be queuing at the border for, for up to 20 hours, literally standing out uh, in the cold. That's some footage I just shot, shot the other day of people who are... Who are just, it's just this constant stream. It, it, it doesn't stop. And they're literally just carrying whatever baggage they, they they can. You've got these really brave women who are, who are coming out with, with two or three kids with them, uh, trying to keep their their spirits up. They're then arriving into to, to Poland, and the Polish are doing a really good job uh of of moving them on and finding them accommodation either in their own country or uh, across europe and you are literally also the, the generosity of, of the Poles is striking as well there are people just getting in their cars and driving to border checkpoints to give people lifts back to wherever they want uh, in the rest of poland or, or in, indeed beyond
2: and speaking of poland there did you get a sense that poland was getting to the point where they were saying You know, we can't cope with the numbers, with the volume of people that we're seeing. We've heard over 2.5 million refugees to date. I heard the UN today saying that could go up to 5 million people. I mean, is
9: there a limit? Yeah, you, you were seeing that the the, the system was, was was under pressure but th- th- where it was working well was funneling people from, from the border on from there to, to reception centres and so on. If the numbers keep on increasing they will hit a point where they don't have anybody where to send people after that. So they do need the help of the rest of Europe. So hence you had buses buses arriving into large car parks at reception centres going uh, right across Europe. We walked on one day and saw buses, a fleet of buses from from germany buses from france italy estonia turkey to take to take people away as long as that system continues yeah they, they'll they'll be able to 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 manage because they've got that that structure in place if you start getting a bottleneck where, where that, that tap starts getting cut off, then you're in trouble. Because Poland are, are handling an awful lot of these refugees themselves, because there's a large indigenous pop, population uh, that has links to, to the Ukraine. You've got an immigrant population of about 1.5 million Ukrainians already living in Poland, so they are soaking up an awful lot of these peoples, but th- the rest of Europe is going to have to continue to weigh in.
2: Okay, uh, Alan Shatter, it appears we've had the right response to refugees, uh, certainly here in Europe, but have they had the right response has the west had the right response to this invasion to putin's actions do you think
7: i think there was some fundamental mistakes made before putin uh went into ukraine i think uh, joe biden too rapidly and the other uh, nato states too rapidly said uh, we will not be fighting in ukraine uh, of course nato doesn't want to fight in ukraine and of course no one wants world war three but that was a signal to Putin uh, that it's open season. You can simply go into Ukraine and you're free to to occupy it. I I think there's been a continuous series of these errors and mistakes. I think uh, they've tried to correct their stances. They've been absolutely right, both from NATO and Europe and other states, to provide uh, what have been termed defensive uh, lethal weapons to assist uh, the Ukrainians defend themselves. Uh, the, the Would you of... like
2: to see more than that? Do but we need to go further? There's a lot further? more
7: that needs to be done. Look, we all hope that dialogue will resolve this conflict and that it will rapidly end. I'm not optimistic that that's going to happen. And where we are at the moment is uh, Putin can wage war unrestrained. His planes can fly across Ukraine and bomb to their heart's content. Uh, of course... Because so- NATO
2: has said, we won't implement a no-fly zone. Well, that, Do you is, think they that is
7: the error. That is the error. Uh, it's Putin who is currently setting the red lines. It's Putin who is creating the narrative, and, Nathan and the, uh, NATO and the United States are adopting that narrative. The truth is, if. Uh, NATO implemented a no-fly zone. That is a defensive measure in the same way as providing weaponry to Ukraine to defend themselves as a defensive measure. And there's no particular...
2: Notwithstanding this nuclear threat, you've written today in the Irish Times, you said this is Putin's nuclear saber-rattling. That's all. How can you say that with confidence?
7: Because this is his blackmail. We we went through nearly 50 years of the Cold War between the West and the old Soviet Union. And why was there no no major wars in Europe because both sides had serious nuclear capabilities and it acted as a huge disincentive. Uh, what's happened now is the thing has been turned on its head. Putin is waving his nuclear missiles as a threat. NATO and Biden are buying into this and backing off. And the truth is, if there was a no-fly zone created, it would mean that the... the, the a level of attack on Ukrainian towns, cities and civilians would stop and Putin would have the option. Putin has no, I, I don't I just think, want to bring to your... just let me finish this, I don't think Putin has any interest in widening the conflict. So you create a no-fly zone, the only way the conflict is widened is if Putin decides to send planes across Ukraine. I don't believe Russia is strong enough to do that and I think the West should have greater um, confidence in the deterrent capacity oh, of its nuclear it missiles.
2: Uh, we heard from Claire Daly uh, there a little earlier in the programme and she has tweeted today in response uh, to the article that she wrote in the Irish Times which said we need to introduce this no-fly zone. She said no-fly zone equals shooting down Russian planes over Ukraine and bombing air bases in Russia. Not even NATO is suicidal or stupid enough to try that with a nuclear-armed state. Ireland should never join NATO and she goes on to say with former defence ministers losing the plot like this. I think that's a reference to you. Uh, Alastair, NATO wouldn't let us.
7: Well, of course, the reality is watching Wallace and Daly, as we were at the first part of the programme. Uh, their approach to this uh, uh, is somewhat disingenuous, as I, as as I'm sure, uh, uh, every a lot of people are aware. Firstly, they did vote against the overall motion in the European. Parliament, number one. Number two, their approach seems to be, we'll now condemn Russia as frequently as we can because we've got into political trouble, but no one should go to the assistance in any shape or form of the Ukrainians. No one should provide them with any uh, weaponry to defend themselves. And basically, we'll condemn Russia, but Russia should be given open season to conduct a a massacre across Ukraine.
2: Has Europe and the West given Putin open season to conduct massacre on the rest? What? I think the phrase that you use in the Irish Times today is "we are booing, the West is booing, but from the sidelines." I,
10: I don't think a no-fly zone is wise whatsoever. I would have called for a no-fly zone, in respect of northern Syria, northwestern Syria, about six or seven years ago. Um, but the US and NATO was a, NATO was accused of brain death by Emmanuel Macron just a couple of years ago. Um, strategic autonomy within the European Union isn't realistic. There is no way that we can escalate this to the point where we're shooting down Russian jets. That is just going to create a disaster. Whatever brinksmanship that Alan thinks uh, may be appropriate what, in these But Do you just think it's too high risk? I, I absolutely do. There are other things that we can do. And I think that we have to be far more aggressive in the way that we detach ourselves from the, the purchasing Uh, of Russian hydrocarbons. I think we also need to look at the question of if there are other forms of military aid that we can provide to uh, Ukraine. But I don't think shooting down jets in this context uh, will result in anything but a major escalation and possibly the entire thing going out of control.
2: But is there any evidence to date that the West strategy is actually working in Russia? That Putin is having a, you know a change of mind
10: let's be clear putin's, is there plan, any evidence of that? putin's plan is not working putin's plan was to subjugate ukraine within a couple of days a very quick war that hasn't yes, happened
2: his plan isn't working but is there any evidence that the west's response to that plan I, is making I, putin change his mind I, or rethink think what he's doing in I, ukraine?
10: I i i think i think i think it has i think the the, the EU, european union has been principled and dynamic in the way that it has responded to this it's done it very quickly um, the European Union is constantly accused of being slow and bureaucratic, but it has acted with extraordinary uh, swiftness in terms of sanctions, in terms of the European peace facility and support, both military and non-military, for the U- for the Ukrainians, including 1.2 billion in strategy? direct finance for the Ukrainian government. Just before we get on to the
11: strategy, I think it's ludicrous to suggest that a no-fly zone would be a defensive weapon. Even taking... It didn't take out the need to shoot Russian planes out of the sky over Ukraine. Of course, Ukraine at the minute there are surface re- Russian surface-to-air missiles. There is no scenario which NATO are going to allow their fighter jets to fly in the face of surface-to-air missiles, Russian ones in Ukraine. So inevitably then NATO have to go and strike surface-to-air missiles. Now, even if they don't do that, imagine a scenario where Russia shoots out a NATO plane saying, sorry, mistake, we thought it was a Ukrainian plane. All of a sudden that's an escalation, and NATO have to decide how you respond. And no fly zone in its current context would be a Gift to Putin. It
7: it's
2: gets a, to
11: radicalise
7: these countries to say,
2: look, okay, I told you so, to here's NATO. To I, I think
7: what Putin most fears is that the West start to so, so, show some strength. I believe he went in to this conflict, believing uh, the West to be weak, uh, to lack backbone. I think the economic sanctions, all of which I support, uh, will only have an impact in the medium term. I think Putin is quite happy to develop a siege mentality in Russia and blame the West for the economic hit. And and the reality is quite simple. The President Zelensky and other people in Ukraine are pleading with the West for a no-fly zone. And why it's a a defensive, not an offensive measure is because its only function is his top Ukrainian town, cities, and civilians the very from being bombed. Like the very it's nature not about the very attacking
11: bombing and shelling. That's going on in Ukrainian cities, such as Mariupol. It's been shelled. That's not happening through airplanes at the minute. Now, have NATO planes go in there, especially towards the parts that are closest to Russia, those planes have been taken off from Crimea. Somebody shelling is happening and the planes are taken off from Belarus. So all of a sudden, NATO has to become an offensive. It has to do exactly what Putin wants them to do. They become an invasion force. NATO, by its very nature, whether you agree with it or not, was obviously supposed to be a defensive alliance. What former Minister Shatter is now suggesting is they become an offensive alliance. That creates the monster of Putin wants them to be.
2: Uh, Fiona, closer to home, we did have that footage um, today of that Russian oil vessel um, sitting there at Dublin Port. I think fifteen thousand tons of diesel. The the optics of that aren't great, are they? I mean, that's that's the difficulty. That is more perhaps of what Alan Chatter says: the West's weakness here, Europe's weakness.
9: Well, we, we we are similar to a number of other European countries in that regard in our dependence upon. Um, Russian oil and gas, so you you can 't just turn that tap off overnight what What has been remarkable over the last three weeks uh, from west of, uh, from, of, of the, the border uh, has been the, the game-changing manner in which you have seen foreign policy and defensive policy changes in the likes of, of, of Germany, the, the EU adopting uh, a, more, a more militaristic uh, outlook about its role. Because this is not seen, in, in Eastern Europe, this isn't seen as Ukraine versus Russia. People in Poland are looking at this as this is our fight. Because they're of the view, if, if Russia gets away with this, then they're next, or Lithuania, Latvia, uh, Estonia are, are next, and that this will, if, if will be the reformation of the Soviet Union. And they are basically saying we're not going back to that. They have, these people have spent the last 30 years embracing democracy, Western values, and freedom, and they are now turning to organisations like the EU and saying, you're either, you're, "Are you standing with us or not?" I
10: think the, the, the critical point. I, I totally agree with Fiona on this. Is that you know it's not NATO and the EU expanding eastwards. It's these countries looking westwards. They want to, they're aspiring to the democratic values that the European Union espouses. And we are experiencing a massive democratic recession across the world. And what's happening in Ukraine is a battle between dictatorship and democracy. And it's clear that uh, democracy is on, is in retreat across the world and that we have to, we, we have to draw a line somewhere and each, you know, uh, we, we've seen it, I think in the last 17 years, democracy has been yeah. in retreat across the entire world. The problem,
2: wonder, the problem with that is just... how,
7: do, how, when do you, at what moment do you draw the line, the, the position that Ukraine is in at the moment and the bombings we saw uh, only yesterday evening, which we met, which were mentioned earlier, it, you know, your front door is on fire. The democracies in Europe, their front doors are on fire. Now, the same reason being given for not putting a no fly zone in place in Ukraine could be given. For standing back and doing nothing as Moldova's invaded, as the Baltic states are threatened, as Poland is threatened. And if history has taught us anything, if there's a tyrant on the march in Europe, and if the democratic countries stand back and watch and don't rely on their strength to put a stop to it, the, the, the thing
10: will simply escalate. And, that's, and that, that is a real problem. thats that is that we're that's doing a nothing. We're not doing nothing. And, you know, for the first time, Ireland we're not is... We're talking
2: about doing, no, I'm, talking saying, about doing not,
10: enough
7: I'm talking do, specifically we enough about I, I, I an effective no-fly zone. So. I, I want to do everything about.
10: we can for for uh, for Ukraine. And I think we, we, we're we going well beyond our comfort zone. We've got rid of a lot of taboos around military neutrality in Ireland. We have taken a side in this military conflict mm. in Ireland. We have taken a side. We're providing support for the Ukrainian Defence Forces. And that's the first time we've ever done that. But now, uh, my, my, my problem is that this is the first time Putin has been on the mark this isn't the first time the 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 west has had an opportunity to stand up to him i mean there have been uh, so many war crimes in syria um in in in, in georgia in, in, in yeah, chechnya happened, this but, well, has those, happened so many times well, and we've got, got to a point now where it's in
7: europe's doorstep and well what so, he's doing know, now in mariupol is an action replay of what he did in flattening two thirds of Aleppo. So the, but the, the difference, the, the only difference now, is that we're seeing it on Europe's doorstep, and it's getting greater television well, no, coverage. It, it happened in and, 2014
10: and the, when he and invaded Crimea, which uh, uh, is on Europe's doorstep, and nobody did anything about it. Yes, uh, maybe, uh, and, right, and you know, totally Ukraine maybe, was, yes. you know, demilitarized; it was non-aligned. None of this nonsense about provocation from NATO uh, can be explained for the invasion of Crimea. But there was nothing done at that time. So, you know, it, it takes Taking a stand now at a no-fly zone is not the correct approach. We but have the, to take The real question that's going to face
7: both it. NATO and Europe is if this conflict doesn't conclude within the next few days through diplomacy and engagement, what does Europe and NATO do when thousands and thousands of civilians in Kiev are being bombed from the skies and Kiev is being flattened? All
2: right, look, we're going to have to leave it there, but there's lots more with our panel after this break. Uh, we're also going to take a look at the rising number of hospitalizations due to COVID. Do stay with us. Oh, <music> I just want to bring to your attention some footage that has just come in from Russian State TV. This is one of their news programmes. And as you can see in the background, a protester with a sign that says no war um, stormed that live broadcast. Uh, Fionon, look, the propaganda war is everything to Vladimir Putin. It's incredibly brave of a protester to do this. Does it have any impact?
9: Well, there's a false equivalence being portrayed there by our our comrade in the European Parliament earlier on. There there is no comparison between Western media, Irish media, and what is happening in in Russia at, at the moment, where they are being fed a constant diet of diatribe Uh, and and propaganda there, calling this an operation to cleanse uh, Ukraine of of Nazis, rather than an all-out invasion by by an oppressor, as as we can see it from here. So what happened there, that person is probably either, if lucky on the way to prison, probably going to be dead in the next next day or two, because that's how Putin treats uh, any dissent uh, within his his country. So and that will never be spoken about. That won't. That footage won't be seen on Russia, on, Russia, on Russia ever again. Yeah was
2: just looking at it there one more time, incredibly so brave. So now, with the horror of the war in Ukraine front and centre, it would be easy to forget that there was another very big story over the last couple of years. Covid it hasn't gone away and the numbers show that. More than a 1,000 people are in hospital with Covid today and there are warnings that the upcoming Bank Holiday Weekend could see those numbers rise. Well, earlier I spoke to INMO General Secretary Fulney Hay and I began by asking her what her members are seeing in hospitals.
12: We're recording a higher levels of burnout in the last 18 months. That's not any different to what is being um, recorded across the globe in nursing, in medicine, because dealing with this pandemic has been very difficult. What we're critical of right now is every winter we have an overcrowding situation. We have been raising the alarm since the middle of the summer saying we have to have new measures this winter. We cannot expose staff who have worked really hard fighting this pandemic to another winter like they've had. And remember in 2019, going in just before the pandemic hit, we had a terrible winter, very high figures on trolleys. So I think that the idea that their employer's responsibility, which is to give them a safe, a reasonably safe place of work, that is not being upheld, that's their criticism, and a number of nurses working in these departments met with the Minister for Health last Thursday evening at our request. And they set it out very clearly for him how dangerous it is for patients, for themselves working in these departments. Unfortunately, we have seen the increased um, number of assaults against nurses, both in, in EDs but right across the system now so that's not acceptable that's never acceptable and what we need now is we need immediate action because this is not going to stop um, this side of the end of march in fact if the if the if the figures that we're seeing today continue to increase at the rate at which they're increasing we're going to have a problem to legal development so we need to make the decisions now we've a double bank holiday coming up we know that Overcrowding figures always increase after bank holidays. So all of this is predictable. What's missing is real plans, immediate plans to deal with it, to help those that are trying really desperately to work in these environments and to provide safe care. Well, there was Phil
2: Nihay there from the uh, INMO. Uh, Our panel have stayed with us. Gary, um, she said there, look, (laughs) nurses, doctors, they want a reasonably safe place to work. Mm. They're exhausted. They have reached burnout uh, and the numbers are high again.
11: Yeah, and patients want a place where they can be safe when they go to the hospital, but given the number of people on trolleys, inevitably with the fact that COVID is still very much within us, they're going to be a place at greater risk. None of this was unexpected. What's unforgivable is the, unforgivable is the absence of a plan in order to counter that. Um, some of the messaging going out in relation to COVID at the moment has been confusing at best, even the issue of wearing mask wearing at the minute. People have been told mask wearing is by no means mandatory, but for many people, they're still, they should and probably still can wear masks, and that messaging seems to be confused. We Do you think, we, think we moved
2: on masks too quickly?
11: Not necessarily in the mandatory nature. If we don't necessarily think, but in terms of the messaging, actually telling people if you are in, immunocompromised or if you live with somebody who is immunocompromised, that maybe still should be—you should probably still wear a mask. All those messaging just seems to be lost. We seem to have opened the doors and acted like COVID no longer exists with us. And that responsibility is laid very square at Minister Donnelly's door. There should have been a plan. There wasn't. It's his responsibility, and he failed.
2: Uh, Barry Andrews, there should have been a plan. There well, wasn't a plan. Fundly yeah. he says it's dangerous for staff. It's dangerous. For
10: patients yeah i mean look as she said in in in, in the in the clip there she uh, the nurses met with uh, minister donnelly at the end of last week and i understand that mr donnelly minister donnelly is undertaking to to act on the uh, the concerns that have been expressed and it's completely unacceptable i think that i think it's two things first of all i think is, we that, probably, is that
2: immediate action is, well is that I, I, I i'm
10: not i'm not i'm not sure exactly what what action is going to be taken there but i think first of all we acted too quickly on masks And I think we all dropped our guard and uh, you know everywhere well, we're we not there. sort
2: of told it was okay to drop our guards yeah I,
10: I think it was a mistake I, th- I think I think it's, it's it's something that we need to we you know it's a we'll, well sorry it's you a know, government, government
11: plan to set standards this we this had no is standards this is a very, is a very dynamic, dynamic situation deventor. Gary it's not, it's not you know standard. and, and, we and Bill, to Bill, the Bill, Niche, Bill, Niche, Bill Niche there was no standards set of ventilation well. that was a government responsibility it's not a case that we all failed I mean we've withdrawn ourselves from society for over two years government in that time failed to act on relegation to ventilation failed to suppress divorce and failed like the contingencies no, in no terms no of hospitalisation numbers.
10: We, 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 the, I think this, this government acted extraordinarily well in terms of uh, suppressing the virus. In, in terms of getting vaccines distributed, we have the highest numbers in Europe across, uh, in, in all of the EU member states. Now, what we have now is a, a, a variant of the Omicron, um, a sub-variant of the Omicron variant. And there are elements of this that are not predicted. But I think the government is now uh, seized of the issues that Phil Hay has just outlined in the, in the clip there. I think it's critical that we act for them uh, because it's not acceptable um, for nurses to have to act under those circumstances.
2: Yeah, Alan Shatter, would you agree sort of, we dealt with COVID, you know, when it was here, when it was the dominant news story, when it was affecting all of our lives quite well, but now yeah. we've taken our mm. eye off the ball and perhaps the government have handled this badly?
7: I think we all have to individually make decisions about COVID. We've been, we've learned more about COVID and pandemics in the last two years than we knew for the uh, earlier part of our lives. And my personal assessment of this, I'm not in government, I'm not making decisions uh, from a pure common sense basis. We know that firstly, Omicron is out there. We know that it's very catchable. Uh, I increasingly meet people who are for two years have now caught it I think people should, should be encouraged to keep All on right. wearing masks in crowds okay we're going gonna have I mean, to leave, leave it reality. there
2: but my thanks to my panel we'll see you back here tomorrow night take care
1: this is a virgin media originals podcast series